Hi, I'm Trevor Cochran and this is The Garden Gurus Live, a weekly show where I'll share seasonal gardening advice, feature a variety of gardeners from all across Australia and give listeners the opportunity to interact and ask your garden questions. To join the chat live and ask your gardening questions, all you need to do is like our Facebook page and tune in every week. This program is brought to you by The Garden Gurus and Scott's Performance Naturals. Scott's Performance Naturals is the 100% natural and sustainable way to grow and feed your garden. Backed by years of research and developed by scientists, the technology employed enhances natural processes, allowing extra strong growth. The Performance Naturals range contains organic materials such as Nature N, Blood and Bone, Seaweed, Biostimulants, Manure and Feather Meal to improve the soil and encourage microbial and earthworm activity. To find out more about the Scott's Performance Naturals range, head to lovethegarden.com.au. Hello, welcome to The Garden Gurus Live. I'm Trevor Cochran and it is great to be back with you this Monday morning. Now, we have got the busiest show I think we've ever had for you this week and it is going to be packed full of some pretty amazing advice. We've got some real talent joining us. It's Australian Pollinators Week. This week, uh, gardeners are invited to roll up their sleeves to help our busy bees do the right thing and make sure that we're looking after our bee populations and to chat a little bit more about Pollinators Week and what we can do to help, I'll be joined by the project manager at the Wean Bee Foundation, Dr. Anna Karakan. Now, we'll also have the co-inventor of the Flow Hive, Cedar Anderson, joining us. And I think you're going to learn a lot. I don't know whether you've had this problem, but there's a lot of people been writing into us also about worms. If you've ever heard of a plague of worms, um, this is going to be well, quite a shock for you. It is really the stuff of nightmares. And we'll be taking a look at a question and some photographs that somebody sent through. We've got worm expert Kevin Smith joining us in, uh, joining in with us this morning. And um, if you're wanting to get started with your own veggie and herb patch, or you want to get the best results out of them, this is the time to do something. I will show you how to do it a bit later on. I've got a bit of advice there. And don't forget, we've always got our good mate from Garden Express, David Van Berkel, will be joining us. He's got a great deal on passion fruit. And now is the time to be getting passion fruit into the ground, which is exactly what I did on the weekend. As always, we'll be answering your gardening questions, and we've got plenty of prizes, including, of course, our fabulous Mr. Fothergill Seeds, which we'll be picking five winners for the five best questions a bit later on. And Robin will be sending, will be selecting those people and uh, sending you a note at the end of the show to let you know that you won. So please put your garden questions in. Make sure when you do it, you tell us where you're from. It's really important. Ideally, obviously state, but, but ideally town or, or suburb. It's really important. And of course, if you like what we're doing, make sure you hit that like button. It really does help. Now, uh, Carolyn from Sutherland in New South Wales uh, last week asked us a question about her roses and they really did, she sent us some photographs in, you can have a look here, you can see just how unhappy these, rose, these roses are. Now, it, it's, this is not so much about a pest attack, this is more about the need for adding a really, really good fertiliser just at the moment. She's applied 
sprays and all sorts of things. But in actual fact, this is about getting them to grow. So giving them a really good boost right at the moment is the ideal way to go. And that's the key, Carolyn, is fertilizer. Roses need lots of it. I've had pretty much the first flush of all my roses in my garden. They're all about to get a big feed. And it's an important time of the year to sustain that flowering and that energy by putting good nutrient into the ground. Uh, Christine, good on good on you, Christine from Sterling. Um, quick question about the seed pod you removed from your Stephanotis. Would I get good results from seed by waiting until it browns off and how long would that take? Well, I don't know how long it's going to take to brown off. It just needs to dry out, Christine. Um, what, what you do have to do is definitely let it dry out. You don't want those seeds to be green. They need to be dry, and and that could take because they're a big seed pod. It's like an avocado. A lot of people think that they've got an avocado, but it's not an avocado. Um, it really is actually just uh, just a big seed pod. And um, once it's dried off, the seeds will be dry inside. That's the time to take them out and plant them. But you probably don't want to be planting them anyway until about January, typically with Stephanotis. That's the best time to get them to grow from seed. So that's uh, that's Christine's question in Sterling in Perth in WA. Um, let's go to South Australia. Kim, what range of planter pots do you use on the show for Renaissance planting each week? Also, where can they be purchased in South Australia? Okay, well, uh, the particular range of pots that we've used are uh, they're a fibre cement pot um, made in uh, – they actually come from uh, Vietnam – but uh, interestingly enough, they're sold right around the country. They're a lightweight pot, incredibly tough, and that one has a stone finish. Kim, um, the best place I would say in South Australia to get your hands on it is probably going to be Heine's Garden Centre. So uh, worthwhile checking them out. Um, just do a, a quick Google. Great range of pots. In fact, great range of plants out there as well. Lauren has written in to us. We're not sure where you're from. Oh, now, Lauren, this is a really good point. You you wrote in on the weekend. You were disappointed because you watched the TV show on the weekend and I mentioned uh, that beautiful raven ZZ plant. It's this one over here, if you can see it. Um, one of my favourite indoor plants. And also we featured within the same show some rubber plants. And, and you say we forgot to mention that these plants are poisonous to pets and humans considering the percentage of Australians that own pets or have children. Well, Robin, I'm sorry if we upset you. We didn't intend to do that. But we we don't mention that plants are toxic because unless it's edible, we're not going to we're not going to um, tell you that anything other than don't eat it. You shouldn't be eating indoor plants. Um, your pets should not be chewing on them. And if they are, you need to be coating them with something that's bitter. So uh, lemon juice and things like that will stop cats from chewing on plants. Very, very important because most indoor plants are actually toxic to eat. So you don't want to eat them and you certainly don't need to be rubbing yourself up and uh, against them. So some of you've got a bit of room, you've got some indoor plants. We want people to have more plants indoors. Just to give you an idea on toxicity in plants, there are so many plants that are incredibly toxic, including some that we eat. So every part of the tomato, the roots, the leaves, the stems, is actually poisonous to humans and to animals. Everything except for the fruit. So what we recommend you do, of course, is you only eat the fruit. I hope you understand what we're saying here. It's not about identifying all the small elements of any one particular plant. When we mention indoor plants, we mention the ZZ plant because it's almost indestructible. 
And it's certainly something that you do want to have inside in your house. It's taking all of those poisons and toxins out of the atmosphere. It's putting fresh oxygen into the atmosphere. It's so good. And that's what we wanted to focus on. So I hope you understand that's why we are um, we're pushing these things and not getting hung up on the, the toxicity of plants because everything could be um, something that's not good for you. So unless we're mentioning that it's edible, don't go eating it. All right. Francis is in Carumbara. Uh, I hope I got that right, Francis, uh, in Victoria. My monster globe artichokes have finished fruiting. Can I cut them back? as the bad weather has almost destroyed them. I do have side shoots with um, also with a bit of luck, they might come back. They will cut back. If you cut them back, they will come back, yeah, and those side shoots will fill out and be larger plants. So one of the things with globe artichokes is keep the, the flower heads, so cut them off so they, they'll go to seed and just sit them on top of the soil. That whole head will be full of seeds and then the, the stamens actually break down and act like a seed raising mix. So if it's wet, you'll find all those little seeds inside will suddenly germinate. So you'll have that flower head and it'll have 50 or 60 plants in there that you can break up and spread around the garden if you really love artichokes. I do. I think they look great. But um, uh, apart from probably one or two recipes I've got, uh, I, I hardly ever use the flowers, which is a bit of a shame. But, you know, it is one of those plants. If you love them, it's certainly something you should be growing. Okay, so we've been in Adelaide, we've been in Victoria, we've certainly been in WA. Uh, let's go back to Adelaide and say hello to Helen, who has asked for some advice related to flower carpet roses as an alternative to lawn. Well, look, if you're not walking on it, then absolutely, but you have to understand that carpet roses, any of those landscape roses, are thorny, and uh, you don't want to be walking on something that's thorny. Um, if you're just looking for something to cover large amounts of area, Flower carpet roses, they are unbeatable. They really are sensational. Let's go up to Queensland. We've got Sally who's uh, tuned in with us and she's got weird growth on her grevillea branches. What could this be? Now, look, I've been seeing a fair bit of this recently and there's there can be two or three things that cause this. What it does show, though, is that your grevilleas need to be pruned back. So giving them a bit of a trim back, pruning out that's that damage that you're talking about and i think the weird growth you're getting is this sort of gnarling on the stems which could be caused by a borer um it could be caused uh there's actually a couple of bugs that actually get in and, and break the the um bark and when they do that they actually cause this gnarling this gall that uh, that appears cutting those galls out is probably the best thing you can do as far as your grevillea goes i hope that helps Namala is in Perth. Hello, Namala. My king, Protea, has a flower bud and it had it a few weeks ago. I was so excited. I fertilised it and it's just turned into more leaves. What's wrong? Well, actually, it couldn't have been a flower bud, but when that new growth comes out, it starts to look like it's going to do that and then suddenly you will see new growth emerge. Um, yeah, it should be producing flowers. It should probably be coming to the end of the king, Protea, flowering season it probably should have produced flowers in perth about two months ago so um encourage the growth it's really important Amala, because it will flower next year just going to, have to be a little bit patient okay again please let us know where you're from emily's written into us i'm not so sure where you're from emily is there such a thing as a plant doctor my gardenias are yellow and miserable you've tested the ph added magnesium iron you think you're giving it adequate water, it's got afternoon shade and there's no sign of them recovering. 
other people who can help you work out what is wrong. I'm really starting, uh, so I'm ready to start singing to them each morning. I love it, Emily. Um, look, singing does help, but if they sing back at you, you're in trouble. What I would recommend you do is you keep the fertiliser up to them. What you're seeing really at the moment is not so much the, the pH or the issue with regards to greening. What's really going on here is it's been cold and gardenias, when it's cold and they're not growing, they tend to yellow off and they look miserable. Now is the time to be feeding them and keep the fertiliser flowing consistently. It's really important because as the weather warms up, you'll see them take off. Keep singing and let's see how you go. Maybe you could send us a, a bit of a clip of you singing to your gardenias, Emily. We would love that. Cherie is in Victoria. Hello, Cherie. I know you tune in on a regular basis. Thank you very much. Just wondering if anyone else is struggling with their tomato plants this year. I've planted several at two-week intervals since the end of September. Melbourne's weather has been so crazy. It's been super hot one day and today, for example, freezing and lots of cold wind and your tomatoes are not happy. Well, tomatoes love hot conditions. That's the first thing you need to keep in mind. When it's hot and it's warm, you'll see them, they take off and they're doing, they'll do unbelievably well, but not until we get that consistent warm weather. But the good news is here we are sort of, uh, what, middle of uh, second week of November, you are going to start to see those warm days kick in. And as they do, you're going to see lots and lots of beautiful little flowers emerging. You'll see plants starting to grow strongly all the right things, so don't worry. It just needs some warm weather. Bronwyn is in Crookwell in New South Wales. Hello, Bronwyn. Um, I'd love to know more about growing chickpeas. Are they, a cold, are they a cold climate bush? No, they're not a cold climate bush. They are really actually a warm climate plant. And uh, chick, chickpea crops are grown in uh, Queensland and even in the north of Western Australia, up in, um, the, in the Kununurra region. And uh, I really can't tell you what it's like to grow them because I've never actually grown them myself. So maybe somebody out there has got some experience with growing chickpeas and you would like to share them with us. Please write in, let us know, and Bronwyn um, will share that information with you. Tyson, g'day, Tyson. It's great to have you join us this morning. Um, can you plant passion fruit seeds in the garden beds? Can I please have some tips and advice for growing them? Well, here's a little thing with passion fruit seed. So, you know, the seed itself is a really hard little shelled seed. Collect your seeds, get yourself a, a cup of hot, uh, really, really boiling water. Pop the, actually pop the seeds into the bottom of the cup, pour the boiling water in over the top, and then let them sit literally through the day and overnight and then plant them the next day. Um, you don't plant, you only plant the seeds as deep as the seed is large. So if the, the seed's that long, which uh, is about that big, um, that's about the depth that they go in the ground. They don't have to go in really deep. Um, growing passion fruit from seed is a really good way to go, but grafted passion fruit will guarantee you crops within the first 12 months and they tend to have an extended lifespan. So a typical passion fruit will work pretty well for between five and six years. A good grafted passion fruit, you can get a good 10 years out of it and massive crops. We'll talk about grafted passion fruit a bit later on. Okay, let's go, we'll stay in Victoria. Robin's written in, she's from rural Victoria. I've planted my gladdies and some other vegetables as well, but I'm finding they're pushing up out of the ground and I have fertilised the ground. The ground is not hard. Why are my vegetables and some of my flowers popping up? The whole bulb is coming up. Pretty good point here, Robin. And this is actually something that I've made the mistake of myself. 
Flatties actually should be planted a bit deeper. You know how they grow really long? Once they get to that long point, if they're not deep enough in the ground and if the root system's not strong enough, particularly if the soil is quite shallow and sitting on, say, a rocky surface or a compacted surface, you'll find your gladius will fall over. And it's very hard to stake them if you're in that sort of environment as well. Best thing to do is plant your gladius a little bit deeper. And when you're planting vegetables, make sure you're cultivating the soil up and getting nice, deep, cultivated soil. It really does make a big difference. Wow, we have been flying along today and uh, we've got some great questions, but I do want to go straight to a bit of a chat about fertilising your best, to get the very, very, very best results out of your um, edible plants. So growing edible plants this time of the year, we just talked about tomatoes, but herbs, vegetables in particular is really important. Now, when it comes to tomatoes, if you don't have the right fertiliser, with a high level of calcium in it, you can end up with this disease called blossom end rot. It's a physiological disease and it, it's basically this browning on the bottom of it with a rot on the inside. It spoils the fruit and it's one of the really important things you need to fix. You know, phosphorus is also really important because it it's, promotes hardiness of the plant but also vigorous growth. And then if you're in heavy soils, like we were just talking about just then with the gladdies, you need to break those soils up. So adding... A lime base is really important. Now, gypsum is a pH neutral lime that improves the structure of the soil. And then the last thing you want to do is make sure you're stimulating the soil with seaweed. Now, seaweed's basically it's a natural soil tonic, if you like, plant conditioner. And what it does is um, it's effectively rich in plant hormones. So it stimulates really good, strong, healthy growth. It just means the plant's functioning as well as it possibly could be. I probably need to have a bit more seaweed in my diet, I would have thought. Now, I've just told you. So, you know, six months, you want to feed nice and steady. You want lots of good nutrients in there. You want the calcium. You want the phosphorus. You want the gypsum and the seaweed. Well, how do you get that all in one fertilizer? And the answer is... You keep your eye out for this stuff. This is a really interesting blend of controlled release plus organics, and that with some wetting agent to make sure that the, the, the I suppose the soil is consistently moist is vitally important. This one is designed specifically for vegetables, tomatoes, and herbs. So it's from Osmocote. It is an absolute ripper of a product, and it feeds for six months. This next six months is vitally important. So you've got to make sure that you're using the right kinds of fertilisers. And this is probably going to treat, I would say, the average size vegetable patch. It's about um, three and a half, no, one and a half kilos there. So um, you'd need about a handful per plant. You've got a bigger bigger veggie patch, get yourself the bigger pack. But um, really good way at the moment to um, to get your plants, well, to sustain that growth because we have had a pretty remarkable year when it's come to being cooler, wetter and more sustained growth. Now, that probably leads me on to one of the most important things that we could all do. I've been talking to you about growing stronger, healthier fruit and veg at home and getting the best results out of it. Did you know that one in every three mouthfuls of food you have is the result of bees pollinating plants? Very important, particularly this time of the year. So we thought because it is, uh, this is pollinator Australian Pollinator Week, that we'd get uh, a couple of people on board to talk about bees. 
and their importance and some of the amazing work that the Wing Bee Foundation is doing. So I've got Cedar Anderson, who is an entrepreneur. He is the co-inventor of Flow Honey. I think he's a third-generation uh, beekeeper. And Dr. Anna Karakan, who is the project manager for increasing pollinator prevalence at the Wing Bee Foundation. Cedar, welcome to the show. I'll say hello to you first. How are you going? For having me, Trevor. I'm good. I'm out in the garden. It's a beautiful day. What now? Tell me about these houses that are sitting behind you right at the moment. So this is the flow hive, my father and I's invention, and uh, yep. you can see it here with the bees in the window, which is a beautiful thing for for people to really engage with the bees and what they're doing. And you can see the honey also in the in the frames, and actually watch them fill it up, which is a, a wonderful thing that people people really enjoy. We've actually just been harvesting some honey this morning, and that's amazing. Uh, it's it's um yeah, it's a beautiful thing just to watch the honey come straight out of the hive. And oh, it's, we've also it's an got incredible invention. Little... It was it was an amazing success story, Cedar. You guys, um, I think you set out to raise about seventy thousand dollars when you went for a crowdfunding campaign to develop this up as a business. And what was it about twelve million US that you raised? Yeah, it was this incredible start from sitting with my father inventing this thing for a decade and then suddenly we put it out there to the world and just got so, so much interest. It was a, an amazing and rocket ship way to start and, and we managed to dial up a, a manufacturing line here in Australia, which we're very proud of. Yeah, well done. Now, look, I'll, I'll introduce Dr. Anna Karakan. Now, Anna, you guys are doing some pretty amazing work in promoting um bee-friendly gardens. I suppose that's the best way to put it. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Trevor. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, tell me a little bit about the Wean Bee Foundation. So the Wean Bee Foundation, it's an Australian not-for-profit charity and the foundation promotes awareness of the importance of honeybees and, and bees for food mm -hmm. security um, as well as environmental resilience. And the foundation raises funds for research that addresses um, national and global threats to bees mm -hmm. and engages with government, um, the beekeeping or apiculture industry, uh, food industries that rely on bees for pollination yep. and even universities and research organisations. Tell me, um, uh, I suppose both of you can comment about this. Cedar, you with... Uh, you know, generational history as a, as a beekeeper and, and obviously the creator of the, the Flow Hive um, or co-creator with your dad. Um, bees, we're very lucky here in Australia. We don't seem to have the, the diseases or the, the same level of threats that we're seeing in other parts of the world. They're a pretty important animal in the whole ecosystem. What, what are you guys, I mean, how do you feel about, um, about the, the bee industry and the health of the or the importance of the bee industry here in Australia. It's a pretty important industry, isn't it? It is. As you said earlier, one-third of the food types we eat is pollinated by bees, and that's our, primarily our European honeybee that lives in hives like this. And, you know, that, that's a big deal if, if those are threatened. So it's a really important industry. There's a lot of beekeepers who dedicate their work to pollinating our food crops, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. And a hive like this can pollinate 50 million flowers in a day, which is, just take that number in for a moment. It's absolutely wow. incredible. 
there is no other insect or, or thing on the planet that can do that for us. So the way we're tangled up with, with our agriculture and bees and the whole food system, it's really integral that we look after our honeybees. And the, the work you guys do um, in raising funds, a lot of this is towards research. Is this to help protect our industry, protect the health of bees in Australia? We're very lucky, obviously. We live on an island, so, uh, you know, we're not exposed as, as we're seeing, um, you know, the problems in North America and, and in Europe with, with bees. And it, it's always that combination of things too, isn't it? Sometimes it's chemicals, but other times it, it's also some of these environmental factors uh, mites or, uh, um, you know, other potential uh, predator threats. The, yeah, the, as you said. Sorry, I'll, I'll put that one to Anna. There's um, there's a lot of awareness raising um, done by the Wing Bee Foundation in terms of understanding what pollinators need in the environment in order to thrive and persist and, and be maintained in, you know, healthy and abundant populations and whether that's in terms of honeybees in managed hives and um, improving the understanding of um, threats, pests, diseases or um, working towards improving characteristics of honeybees so that they are more successful um, and healthy in their hives as well as Australian native bees of which there are over 2,000 species mm. and looking at and working on projects that are about increasing understanding of what a lot of these native bees need in our environment in order to have access to food, um, water, and really importantly, nesting and breeding sites, such as, you know, digging holes in the ground. A lot of our native bees are solitary as opposed yeah. to living in colonies like the European honeybee. And a lot of people are surprised that many of them actually dig holes in the ground in which to live. This is um, this is a pretty big thing. Cedar, I'll, I'll put this one back to you because um, chemicals in our environment are a significant concern, you know, particularly pesticides. Um, and and bees are a great one of those great indicators that if we're doing something wrong, we start seeing you know losses of colonies of bees. If we if we are creating a healthy environment for them and we're avoiding the use of these chemicals, it makes a big difference to, to the populations and the healthiness of the actual hives themselves, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's a really sad thing and I've seen it a couple of times myself when you hear stories of the uh, insecticide issues where a hive will go and forage on flowers that have been freshly sprayed with insecticide and they all yep. end up with a dead sort of carpet of bees out the front of their hive with their with their tongues hanging out, and mm. it's it's we have less of those issues here in Australia, but they are still there. And in in other countries where you've got the chemical use, the their really widespread agriculture mixed with uh, not much of a variation in forage, the bees get quite sick, and you end up with those colony collapse issues. And especially with things like the neonicotinoids, when they're yeah. in there they can really disorientate the bees and they just won't make it home. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot in it, but it's um, really important that we obviously need to keep our food chain going and keep our farmers going because that's what's supporting us. But we need to really wise up and change our ways. If there's going to be more people on this planet, we need to work out how we can do it sustainably so that we can go yeah. on doing it forever. Um 
And I'm sure there's there's a, a huge amount of advice that you guys um, are able to provide. And we're going to encourage people to make sure that they check out the the Wing Bee Foundation website. But what can people do at home to create better environments for bees? There's a, an amazing array of things that people can do to enhance pollinator and, and bee populations in their in their own patch, whether that's their their balcony, rooftop garden, typical backyard, or a larger, um, you know, full-on broadacre agricultural enterprise. Mm-hmm. We've developed a range of guides which you can download from the website for a small but growing number of bioregions across Australia called the Powerful Pollinators Guides. Powerful. And um, a simple typing in of those words into your favourite search engine will we'll bring those up for you to download PDFs. But there's, there's three critical things. One is um, forage, and, and Cedar touched on this, having available forage all year round um, from a variety of species so that the bees can have a well-balanced diet in much the same way that people, you know, it's like sort of eating the rainbow. They've got a range of different floral species for pollen mm-hmm. and nectar and that there's no sort of gaps in the food supply, so to speak. The other is um, access to safe and clean drinking water and safe really relates to having something bees can access, drink and then um leave again safely without slipping in and drowning. So, you know, pebbles in bird baths and things to make little islands. Um, and the third one is somewhere to nest and breed. So if if you're talking about a managed honeybee hive, obviously that's where the bees are living and, and breeding. But for a whole range of other pollinator species, it's... Um, it's having somewhere, whether it's cracks and crevices in bark, whether it's areas of bare soil that they can dig their little nesting burrows in, um, right through to classic, you know, make your make a bee hotel. Um, and there's also a fact sheet on how you can DIY your own bee hotel on the Wean Bee website, yeah. because the some of the um, some of the ready-made ones available in store aren't always suitable for some of our native bee species. So there's those three main things and um, that will ensure that, you know, build it and they will come. If you create the habitat and the food supply, then the pollinators will start to flourish in your landscape and there'll be enough to support a really large number of them. Well, look, it's a really, um, it's a really important thing, and and that's great advice you've given us, CD. I'm I'm in love with the flow hives. I've got a traditional hive at home. I am going to get my hands on this concept. Would you just tell us what the the single most important or biggest point of difference is with regards to your hive and a, a traditional hive? So basically. As far as the bees are concerned, the, the bottom box is just the same. The bees have done it the way they have for forever, just building on, on wooden wax. And then yep. what's different is we've gone and put our flow frames in the top, which are a partly formed honeycomb matrix that allows you to turn a handle and the honey flows right out of the hive straight into your jar here. And wow. that's just a wonderful and new way to harvest honey compared to the conventional way, as you as you know, no well and uh, I certainly did the conventional way for a very long time before going there must be a better way so that's what we came up with 
and uh, it works really nicely. And of course, you've still got to look after your bees, make sure they're happy and healthy, or you're not going to get uh, a good honey harvest. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing to jump in there and, and learn about beekeeping and get the beautiful reward. But at the same time, really important, as Anna's been talking about, to look after your native bee species. And that's why we plant a lot of flowers around to, to really attract the native bees into the into the garden and give them stepping stones across the uh, urban landscape. And, Look. yeah, it's wonderful, wonderful work that um, the Wean Bee's been doing and we're proud to be supporting that with some of the um, funds we've been raising. Fabulous. I think the work you guys are doing is just sensational. Bees are a vitally important part of our environment. They do play a very important role. We do need to be conscious of, of their existence in our gardens and, and plants in a bee-friendly way. And there are so many beautiful plants that can provide, you know, if we stagger that flowering throughout the year, can provide amazing honey. I, I will just tell you one thing that I, I've only had uh, my own bees for maybe three years now, but one of the things that I love about it is I've got some bushland alongside in uh, sort of the July, August and early September period, we have wonderful wildflowers. And uh, usually around the second week of October, will start harvesting a, a bit of honey. And uh, that's a beautiful, light, um, very, very um, floral kind of honey. But in about, um, about uh, two weeks' time, we start with the, um, with the, the red gums flowering. And uh, the, the next harvest of honey, which will be probably in sort of January, is a deep red. And it's a reflection of obviously the food they're eating. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's something that you can in, actually influence. And this is what I wanted to emphasize. With what you plant, you can actually influence the, the flavors of the honey you get, right? Definitely. Absolutely. So, so at the moment, we've got this almost clear honey. It's like light, light yellow, and it's so flagrant, it almost blows your head off when you eat it you know yep. and um but in contrast i was harvesting some frames from the same hive and the honey was so black you couldn't see through it and that's the difference between the winter flowers here and the spring flowers it's just an incredible joy to be able to really uh isolate and tune in on what honey flavors are relating to what flowers well look, i i think that that's probably a good point to um to to leave everybody with um cedar anderson if people want to get uh, a little bit more information head straight to honeyflow.com.au and um anna look thank you so much for your time the the wing b that's w h e e n b foundation.org.au to find out more about the amazing work you guys are doing Thanks, Trevor, and uh, happy Australian Pollinator Week. You can <laughs> check that website out online too. There's lots of awesome webinars and um, information about supporting our pollinators. Thank you guys for both your um, your wonderful work you do and, uh, and for joining us today on the show. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks again, Trevor. See you later. All right. Garden Express are Australia's leading mail-order gardening service, offering a wide range of quality garden products. Each week on the Garden Gurus Live, the team at Garden Express will share a weekly offer. So make sure after today's show, you jump online and visit their website. Now, look, we have a lot of questions coming in. If you've got bee questions, send them through. Um, they really are... Um, they really are an incredible animal and uh, we have, well, so much going on at the moment with 
regards to activity in our garden. So the more plants you can put in that are going to give us colour, the better off we will be. Now, I'm not sure where we are. Let's have a look. We've got um, questions coming through. And Robin, where are we? No, we've done that question. We've been to Crookwell. Um, and we've been with Tyson. Oh, I tell you, Robin is in the NT. We haven't been to the NT as of yet. So hello, Robin. I want to plant some everlasting beauty as a front, as a fence screen. Now, they grow up to three metres, but I can't plant them in the ground. They have to be put in pots. What size would be the best use? Now, I'm pretty sure everlasting beauty is a type of lily pilly. I'm, there's so many different varieties come through. But I can tell you, if you're going to use something as a screening plant, you are going to want a 500 mil pot as an absolute minimum because that is any plant that's going to grow to three metres high is going to want to have at least a half a metre wide for its root system and, and deep ideally at least the same in depth. So um, the other thing that's vitally important, make sure you're using a really good quality potting mix. So that Osmocote potting mix that you'll see us using on the show all the time, it's got controlled release fertiliser, it has got um, some wonderful wetting agents and natural ingredients, and it sustains this really long, ongoing process with regards to steady growth. And that's what you want from any kind of screening plant. Speaking of great screening plants, one that I have just planted into my garden because I had it turn up in the mail for me is the grafted passion fruit. Now, I put in the black passion fruit, that's the Nellie Kelly one, and also the Panama Gold absolutely beautiful fruit and now's the time to be putting them in the ground so I thought we'd try and catch up with my mate David Van Burkle from Garden Express. Hello mate, how are you? Yeah, really good Trevor and yourself? Oh, fantastic. It is glorious weather here in Perth. I think um, I think our winter has finally gone where we're starting to see the conditions are changing so this is a, this is a very interesting time of the year over here but I'm hearing from my friends in uh, in Melbourne, despite having some warm days, you've got another cool one again today. Mate, we're fresh. We're fresh and we're wet every day of the week. It's, uh, it's a really unusual season. We've probably had, you know, since September, maybe five or six days over 25 degrees. It's uh, been ridiculously cold. Everything's been a little bit slow. Uh, but um, still having fun, mate. Always having fun. This is a, a time of the year, though, to have that slow, steady, sustained growth. So it's not such a bad thing. It just just means that anybody who's been hanging out after a long, wet winter for a bit of a uh, bit of sunlight is probably going to have to be a little bit more patient. David, tell us a little bit about the grafted passion fruit deal you guys have got, because Nellie Kelly passion fruit was originally started well over a hundred years ago in Victoria as a as a professional um, passion fruit grafting company. Why would people want to graft passion fruit? Look, you, you, uh, you're looking for a, a better rootstock that gives the plant a little bit more um, variety in the, in the climates that it can, can grow into. So mm -hmm. the gold one particularly, we can now grow you know, up into the uh, tropical climates, but all the way down in Tasmania, it does really well. So yeah. the, graft, the grafting is really just a better way to get disease resistance, a stronger rootstock that uh, that can tolerate, you know, your frosts and your and your variations in climate. Mm. Now I know Nellie Kelly use a um, rootstock called Corolla. It's the blue uh, uh, passion fruit, so that's the the rootstock that it, that it goes on to. Great thing about Corolla is it's a it's a cold climate passion fruit, so it'll grow really well in in hot dry conditions like say we have in Perth or in Adelaide, but 
you, you've got long sustained cool conditions in Melbourne, this is actually the perfect rootstock to get the very best results from a passion fruit vine. And you mentioned the gold. The gold is probably one of the best tasting passion fruit. But interestingly enough, it really struggles in cool climates. Again, put it on Corolla, and what happens? It grows like crazy. It does grow like crazy, and uh, it is. It's a sweeter fruit. You probably get a little less pulp out of each of the of the passion fruits, but we get up to 150 uh, fruits off each plant over a season once it's established. And I've got some in my garden, Trev. Cold, wet winters just bounces back into this beautiful, vibrant, big plant, and uh, and heaps, hundreds and hundreds. And for me, the black passion fruit. It, uh, it gives you plenty to make, you know, your jams. And with Christmas coming, of course, we're going to have some fruit there to put on top of the pavlova trap. Absolutely. And nothing better. You can see me planting. I actually put mine up alongside the chook pen because I, I've got a, a north-facing wall on the chook pen. It gets really hot during the summer. And uh, the poor old chooks, they, they look really, you know, knocked around by that heat. This is my solution to cooling the pen down a little bit during the summer months, giving them a, a little bit more of a run to, to put passion fruit up against that. And I suppose the passion fruit also sucks up a lot of that extra nutrient that uh, the chooks tend to lay around the base of the, the pen. Yes, exactly. And then, of course, they stir that through and, uh, and it's quite fun. I've got this mm. similar situation, um, put up a couple of big pieces of Rio, absolutely smothered, you know, two and a half metres wide, uh, five metres long. And uh, just incredible amounts of foliage come off them and, and the shade is, is just terrific. But uh, yeah. love the picking of the passion fruits, Trev, off the ground, off the tree, a bit of sweet, bit of savoury. Yeah, no, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a massive passion fruit fan. They, they're incredibly good for you too. That's the other thing is that they, uh, they're not just, uh, not just a good sugar hit. They are actually something that's um, very good for your health, full of um, lots and lots of antioxidants. Now, David, if people want to get their hands on this, um, can they get the gold? Can they get the black from you? What's the deal? Can you do something for us? Yeah. So the deal is, uh, is Trev, that we'll do one of each, one of the black, grafted black. And, uh, and this year it's a grafted golden passion fruit as well. Uh, the two yeah. of them saving 20% for our viewers, Trev. Sorry. So that's two in a pack, right? So you're getting the two and that is... $28.60, am I correct? $28.60, down from $35.80. Just uh, 20% off this week, bit of a feel-good vibe going on. Uh, everyone should get in their garden with some passion fruits, mate. Good screening plant as well. Yeah, absolutely wonderful screening plant. And, look, now is the time to be planting them. It's, it's very timely. You've come up with this deal, mate. Thank you so much. That is an awesome deal. If people want to get their hands on it, they've just got to go to gardenexpress.com.au. Exactly. The banner will be on the homepage there. Easy to click through straight to the passion fruit deal. Uh, make sure you get one, get them quickly, popular in summer, Trev. Okay, terrific. Now's the time to be getting them in the ground. And the great thing about Garden Express, folks, is, of course, they deliver them direct to your door. How good's that? Thanks, David. Thanks for joining us. Have a great week, eh? My pleasure as always, Trevor, for sure. You too. We'll see you next week. All right, that was fantastic. David Van Berkel, what a guy. Every week comes up with some great deals for us. This show is brought to you by The Garden Gurus and Evergreen Garden Care. Evergreen Garden Care and their market-leading brands are some of the most trusted consumer brands within the garden care market. They produce high-quality garden care products designed to help people create their own green oasis. Whether it's a garden, a balcony or potted indoor plants, they want to inspire anyone 
anywhere to be able to easily create and maintain their own garden. To find out more about Evergreen Garden Care, head to www.lovethegarden.com. Now, I thought we might move on fairly quickly here. We've got a lot of questions coming through, but there's, um, there's one that came through last week, and it is incredible. It really is quite a remarkable thing. Emily from Trafalgar South in Victoria sent us a note. Now, when I read it, I, I probably didn't realise just exactly what she was saying. Until you see the pictures, until you see the video, and we'll see if we can put those up for you now, you won't understand just how bad this is. She wrote in, got a worm plague. Um, they've built their house three years ago and every time they have heavy rainfall, particularly between the months of August to November, worms in their hundreds make their way onto the veranda, up posts, up the walls, even inside the house through the vents in the windows and under the front door. We're also concerned that somehow or other getting into the walls or under the floors, even uh, after all the areas are thoroughly pressure washed and cleaned and the stench they create because they're dying um, lingers for weeks. It, this is absolute nightmare stuff. When you have a look at the vision, are we able to get that up? We're going to pop some up for you to have a look. This is what was sent through. Get a load of all those worms. I've never seen anything like it. I didn't realise just how bad this was until I saw this video. So so there you go. It's a pretty pretty scary thing. Emily, um, I, I've given some advice in the past on trying to reduce worm numbers down a little bit, but I'm, I've never seen anything quite like this. So I thought we'll reach out and we'll ask Kevin Smith from the Worm Shed, who is here in Perth, um, to help us. He's considered to be WA's leading uh, vermiculture expert and has been running the Worm Shed for over 30 years. And, and uh, everybody who is in WA knows Kevin because he's an absolute gun and expert. Mate, thanks so much for joining us today. Did you see that vision? I did, Trevor. How are you doing? Um, yeah, look, I've seen it not too often, but I've seen it the odd time. Um, a lot of it's to do with atmospheric pressure and rain, as the lady mentioned. Yeah. Um, yeah, worms breathe through their skin. So if the ground gets waterlogged, um, they come out. But in those numbers, I tell you, it's the ground must be really compact. So I think they, I believe it's a fairly new place. Um, mm. So they've just done their lawns perhaps and they've maybe compacted the ground that hard. Um, so the water's not draining away enough. Um, so you, you highlighted you highlighted a, a very important thing straight away, and that's that, that worms breathe through their skin. So if the ground is compacted and it's saturated, the only way they're going to be able to breathe is to come out of the ground, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happens. Um, and if you know, those numbers that are there, they must be a native worm. Um, I, well, I don't know if she has any worm farms anywhere, but... Uh, it's very unusual. She's also got some really good soil brought in or forest mm -hmm. mulch, something like that, that had mm -hmm. a lot of worms in it. But um, native worms and those numbers, uh, well, especially here in WA, Look are very that. unusual, very it's unusual. Just, yeah, just a, an incredible, an incredible thing. Now, look at Victoria and yeah. some parts of Victoria, you will get those heavier, more compacted soils but you know to see them sort of moving in towards the house clearly uh it's drier so they're they're able to obviously uh, get a little bit more um 
uh, I suppose, a little bit more air into the system. What would you recommend? Is it worthwhile considering doing something like um, aerating the soil, so putting uh, some kind of uh, either a vertimo or alternatively coring yeah. the, uh, the, the grass areas? Would that help? Yeah, I was thinking exactly on those lines. They really need to get some air, you know, punch some holes through the soil and try and get some drainage working. Maybe yeah. the gap between their lawn and the paving, if they have some sort of drainage system along there. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a hard one, that one, because they're trying to go to the highest ground and I guess the, hill, the house is built on the highest point. Yeah. Um, and then they're looking for light. And when they clump like that, uh, they, I guess... They're all trying to be the one underneath, trying to get away from the light. So, yeah. Um, and the stench, you mentioned about that. Uh, yeah, it's pretty horrible. Um, yeah. So. Well, in those numbers, that they would be that would be a lot of worms dying, and it would be pretty horrible. Are there, is there anything yeah. you could, any kind of barriers you can kind of put around the outside of the house? Is putting lime down or something like that going to stop them crossing over and heading into the dry places actually inside the house or on the porch? I, I guess you could do you know, a barrier, they're going to crawl, crawl over, lime, maybe they'll go under it and try and get, uh, get over the barriers. Yep. Uh, it's a, um, you know, unless they have some sort of feed stations along there, perhaps like a little bit of a raised garden bed along there that has mm-hmm. some you know, good healthy soil in it, they might be able to crawl into that rather than go onto their paving. Yep. Um, yeah, you know, that's, you know, worms are controlled by moist, light, uh, moist, uh, light and food, you know. So if you can uh, give them somewhere they can go that they can have something to eat, you know. Mm-hmm. Those numbers, those, you know, they have a fairly insatiable appetite for organic matter. Yep. Um, uh, you know, I can't imagine there'd be a lot left in the, in the, around the grass um, and obviously none up around the paving. So, um, so That's, probably with that, I, with, with that in mind, I would imagine if you were to set a couple of sort of um, raised garden beds at the back of the of the garden, so away from the house, um, e- even those, you know, the, the metal ones that are used for veggie patches and so on, um, and put some soil in there so that's raised, so that, that's immediately not going to be sodden and saturated. That's got to help straight away. And then maybe yeah. putting some food on the surface of that, hessian bags over the top, that's going to create more of a worm farm kind of environment than than obviously having them come up to your house like we're seeing here. Yeah, well, I say just the numbers there is very unusual for native worms to be in those numbers. Mm. They so if she can, yeah, get them to go to another area and as you say, work on a worm farm. Yeah, you know, just make sure you know they can get up from the bottom, I guess. Um, so they can get into it, and it wouldn't want to be too deep. You, you know, maybe three hundred deep is all they really yep. need to be. Um, yeah, and just yeah, some you know, horse mule is one of the easiest to move worms around with. It's really a balanced okay. diet for them, and okay. uh, it's nice and open for them. So um, yeah, but it's the rain. I've had it here where you know I've had forty kilos of worms all prepared to go out, and the power's gone off, and we had a lot of rain and Half of them crawl out of the boxes. I've got some great video of it, very similar to that, but a lot right. more denser. Yeah, so they can react, and they're also communal. You know, one goes, a lot of them like to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've once again, we've had lots of boxes set up. We're um, ready to go out, and just out of one box, they'll all crawl out. Wow. And 
Yeah, I never, so never realised they were so so. Um, I suppose so active and and move so far. It's it's that that was a real eye opener yeah. for me and something that I, I've never seen before. Mate, if people want to get more advice on worms and and maybe bring them into the garden because I I love obviously the fact that uh, in my garden I've got worms everywhere. Um, yep. what, can do you have a website that they can come and visit and just uh, get some more advice from you? Ah, uh, certainly, Trevor. Look, our website's very simple: wormshed.com.au. So Perfect. they can contact us there. And we do quite a few workshops for different councils around town. Yeah. Um, we just did one last week, uh, last Saturday for Calamunda. Um, sure. And we do them fairly regularly. Um, yeah. Well, so they can go onto our website and they'll come across them. Actually, we've only got two left for this year, but um, some councils we do six in a year, some we do four in a year. If they have a look so at our good. website. Um, it's on there and we've also got quite a few starting to get booked up through um, for next year. Come summertime, it's really a hard time to look after worms. So um, we lay pretty low for a couple of months. Yep. Most of our worms are out in the paddock, so I've got to spend quite a bit of time sort of keeping them under control, keeping them moist, keeping them cool. So, yep. um, yeah, no, but you know, a simple thing for people and forget the chance, you know, they just got to make sure that, they're kept cool, kept in the shade. Um, you know, a simple ice brick on a worm farm, something like that, would certainly help people get th- or help the worms get through on those hot days. So, Wonderful. but you know, back to the lady up there. It's um, yeah, pity it wasn't in WA because I'd love to go out and have a look and inspect it. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I've had one one lot here in Perth in Mosman Park where they brought in a heap of forest mulch. And yep. a very similar situation like that. They obviously didn't like where they were put, and so they right. got up and moved. So they crawled around exactly like they did there. Kevin, uh, that's, so- that's absolutely fascinating. Um, I've never seen anything quite like it, and I really appreciate you joining us to um, to, to share that. And, folks, if you want to know anything more, um, make sure you check out the Worm Shed. You can Google it or you can go straight to Kevin's website. Mate, thanks for joining us this morning. We've got lots of questions coming in. I'm going to need to keep rolling. Yep, my pleasure, Trevor. Cheers, mate. See ya. Thanks, mate. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Now, look, I'll tell you what, that is a um, that is a pretty interesting question. And if you've got any sorts of problems in your garden and you want some advice, then send us photographs or a video like that. That as soon as I saw that video, I was like, this is beyond any advice I'm ever going to be able to give because I've never seen that many worms in one spot before. It was really incredible. Now, speaking of incredible, we've got another fantastic program coming up this weekend of the Garden Gurus. It's episode 14 of Spring. Here's what's coming up. This is the RMI 632P, which is perfect for those on a larger block. And when we say large, we mean large. They're long lasting and reusable. So they are the perfect addition to the garden shed. Now, amphibians, particularly frogs, I reckon, are one of the great indicators of environmental health. The beauty of these plants are their wonderful flowers and they come in all sorts of colours.
there you go. That's what's coming up this week on The Garden Gurus. And uh, we have had so many questions coming in today. I'm going to try and get through them, but I just thought I'd show you this. I picked a bunch of these this morning. Um, we have got the most magnificent fuchsias. This is the time of year you'll get your hands on them in your local garden centre. Mine are just planted out, or this particular one is planted out in full sun and uh, does incredibly well. When you think we're in WA, um, Western Australia tends to be a lot hotter and drier. This is certainly a plant that does prefer it to be a little bit more mild. Um, if you were to go to somewhere like Ireland, you would find them used as hedgerows. They are a wonderful plant over there, but a bit unusual probably to see them like this, but it's maybe because we haven't been trying it. Um, this particular plant has surprised me as to how well it goes, and it flowers all year round. It's just at the moment, it's spectacular. So fuchsias, um, I think uh, it was Edmund um, Fuchsia, who is a um, German botanist who named them, and uh, they have undergone masses and masses of cross-pollinating and breeding work over the years. There's some amazing new varieties available that are really compact, um, incredibly floriferous like this, so covered in flowers, and um, now is the time to be doing something with them. So mine is a, is a shrub that's nearly two metres tall, but you can get some beautiful ones for hanging baskets. Now is definitely the time to do it. Now we're running out of time, so I'm going to fly through some questions and I hope that I can answer yours. Okay, let's go. Jane, we're not sure where you're from, Jane, but you're new to gardening. You bought a dwarf apple tree. It says requires pollination. Do I need a second apple tree, please? Now, typically you would do with apples. However, there are so many apples in the suburbs of pretty much all of our capital cities these days that because of the great work that bees do, um, you'll tend to find that you'll get a cross-pollinator. So you should actually get fruit on your apple tree without having to put two in. What I would do is I'd wait until it's finished flowering, have a look and see if it actually sets some fruit because they'll tend to sort of fruit straight away, these dwarf ones. Um, and it will, you'll find that it will um, probably put a few little fruit up. You can sort of pick those off this year. Um, if it doesn't produce any, and if it doesn't produce any next year, then it's time to get yourself a cross-pollinator. And um, there should be some recommendations on it. They, they do vary by variety. So a lot of the dwarf apple trees these days are dwarfed by the rootstock they're used, not because of its natural habit. So the cross-pollinators will apply because they're still the same original variety. Okay, Margaret is in South Australia. Hello, Margaret. I'm on the coast of South Australia at Port Broughton. Um, it's the Upper York Peninsula. I'm planting a new veggie garden. Being by the sea, it's often very windy. What's the best way to protect my plants from the wind? Wind barriers, um, shade cloth, uh, stakes, shade cloth, wrap around the outside of those beds. It's the only way to stop. If you're really getting blasted, to stop the plants from getting damaged. Um, they will get damaged. It's just uh, the nature of vegetables tend to be pretty soft and winds, particularly salty winds, can really grind through them. So, yeah, um, wind barriers is the best way to go, Margaret. It's lovely to have you join us. Cheryl is in Guildford, but this is Guildford in Sydney. Hello. Are you knowledgeable about Hoya plants? I've had two for about 25 years they're healthy enough, they sit side by side, but one won't flower. It had flowers when I brought it, but it's never since. Now, you've had it for 25 years, so that's pretty remarkable. I feed them once a year with Charlie Carp, water when they need it. What am I doing wrong? Well, Charlie Carp is probably pretty good, but it's not going to trigger flowering. So I want you to go and get yourself something called sulfate of potash. 
Now, you can buy it. It's a, it's a trace element. It's the potash that's really important in this. The potassium is going to stimulate lots and lots of flower production. Hoyas need that. Um, and the other thing that you probably need to do is make sure you back off the water. So give it the fertiliser, water it for a week or so, and then sort of back the fertiliser off. And as we move into some of the warmer weather, you should see some flower production. Joe is in Melbourne. Hello, Joe. I've got a lavender bush. It's become very woody. It's not producing much flowers these days. Anything I can do to remedy this or should I pull it out and replace it? Depends on how old it is, Joe. They do get woody. Um, it's a natural habit of them. Uh, pruning lavender is a really good way to go. You don't want to prune it all the way back to that hardwood. You need to still have some foliage on, but you can prune them pretty hard. That should stimulate new flower. If you find that when it grows back, it's not producing any flower next spring, but it's looking pretty good, um, you'll need to make a decision because it could be just that it's just an old plant. Lavender is, well, it's one of those plants that um, every three or four years, it's well worthwhile putting in some new plants because they do have a few issues, um, but they do look magnificent in the springtime. I've put a lot into my garden this spring. I'm really looking forward to seeing them next spring. James is in Glendonbrook in New South Wales. There's a photo attached. I've got an English oak tree growing in the middle of a fruit orchard. Seems quite unwell. Now, James, we, we did actually address this last week, and I think it's a really interesting thing that you've got going on there. They said the soil's pretty rich and... Um, uh, it's a, a rich loam, probably creek soil. Um, the tree's 13 years old. It's getting up towards 20 metres in height, but it doesn't look happy. And, and when I looked at the photograph, I was like, yeah, no, there's definitely a significant problem with this tree. It's probably related to roots, and it could be that you've got a root fungus in there, or alternatively, could be compaction of the soil can also impact those trees. But, um, yeah, my suggestion is if it's compaction, that you add gypsum to the soil around the base, if it's, um, if it's a root rot, you might want to hit it with um, Yates Anti-Rot. It is a fungicide that's very good for those purposes. Anya is in Parramatta in New South Wales. Hello, advice uh, on looking after a beautiful white Phalaenopsis orchid. Okay, Phalaenopsis, uh, try and avoid. If you can bottom water them, and what I mean by that is um, literally uh, water into the pot but not over the foliage, um, have a tray underneath. Don't let it sit in water all the time, but but allow that water to be sucked back up through capillary action. Um, that is the probably the best environment. They do like it bright. So if your phalaenopsis or your moth orchids are not flowering, nice bright position, lots of light, and that'll help them produce flowers. Now, they should be producing new flower stems about now, and you'll see them just starting to come out the base of the plant. Jan is in Kalamunda. I have poinciana seeds. Kalamundra, by the way, is here in WA. It's actually where I live. How would they go in the clay soil? Would they be similar to jacarandas growing in the Perth Hills? Well, uh, I've been growing poinsettias. I've got two that I've put into my garden, Jan. Um, from seed, going to be very, very hard. You really want to have a, a fairly mature plant going into the garden. Of the two, I reckon I've lost one this winter. It's been cold and wet for a lot longer and it doesn't look good to me. There's a lot of dry stems. So I'm going to have another look at it. The second one, which is just a little bit bigger, looks like it's got through the winter and it's just starting to produce some new ferny foliage. Poinciana's are gorgeous trees, um, but we're probably in the Perth Hills, probably about three to four degrees cooler during the winter than the, than the, the, um, the coastal plain of Perth. And that four degrees is probably putting us right on the border of maybe not being ideal. Um, my suggestion is you get yourself a large plant, Jan, um, or, you know, 
germinate those poinciana seeds but nurse them through the winters um, in a nice warm spot. That's the only way you can do it. And when you get to plants about five or six foot in height, start thinking about planting it out into the garden. Let's take one more question. I am so sorry. We have run out of time. We're actually five minutes over our normal time frame. Um, but Brooke is in Adelaide. Any ideas on how to produce cauliflower from my plant? I only keep getting the leaves. Okay, well, Brooke, it does get down to the fertilizer. Best thing you can do, blood and bone. All right, that's my trick with cauliflower. Blood and bone into the soil, dig it in, water it in. Cauliflowers love it and you'll end up with really nice heads. That's probably the, the most important tip I can give you. Certainly they love a rich organic soil and they do require lots and lots of goody nutrients in there. I'm so sorry if we didn't get to your question today. We really appreciate you watching. And the good news is we'll make sure we answer them next week when we come back. Now, remember, uh, for those people who won the prizes, Robin is going to be in contact with you. So if you get an e a message from Robin, you know exactly what it's all about. You've won some seeds, which will be great. Get them into your garden. Remember, we are in Pollinator Week. So happy Pollinator Week to everybody. If you want to know anything more about bee-friendly farming, check out that website. It is a really amazing website. Very, very good. And um, also, Remember, the Garden Gurus is back this Saturday. We are starting to get to the end of the season, but we've got some great stories. Remember, maybe you want to check the guide in your locality because it's playing in different times around the country at the moment on Channel 9, and it's all over Australia. Um, check it out. And if you want to watch it, when you want to watch it, the simplest way to do it is to go to 9now.com.au because that um, that's video on demand as you want to watch it if you miss the show on a Saturday afternoon. Remember, you can always jump onto our website as well if you want to get previous stories or information. It's an amazing resource for gardeners. Or if you want to watch previous shows, go to our YouTube channel. It's thegardengurus.tv. You can listen back to today's live stream. Uh, very easy. All you do is jump on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Audible. We've got it running as a podcast, and it's in the top five gardening podcasts in Australia, thanks to you and your support. Good news is, well, I'll be back next Sunday. I've got another great session of The Garden Gurus Live coming up, 12 p.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time. It's 9 a.m. for WA viewers. Wow, what a day. What great information. I hope you enjoyed it. And thanks so much for joining us. I'm Trevor Cochran. Happy gardening. The Garden Gurus is back this weekend. Make sure you check out your local TV guide for your local times.